Please open your Bibles now to the 13th chapter of the book of Hebrews. By the way, there is no 14th chapter, so we're getting close. And today we will be looking at verses 7 through 14 of Hebrews chapter 13. And the theme of the message is keep on going to Jesus. If I had to say what the Christian life is all about, reduced to one phrase, I might say that. Keep on going. Keep on going and going and going to Jesus. Hear now the word of the Lord as we read from verse 7 of Hebrews chapter 13. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of, of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured, for we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, this is your word, and we ask that you open our eyes to behold wonderful things in it, because we need your word as much or more than we need food. We do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. So we ask that you help us hear your word today as if our lives depended upon it, because they really do. And we pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you go to Hebrews chapter 13, and you read chapter 13, you are going to see a bunch, just a, a big bowlful of commands. Uh, and we've sort of emphasized that already. Commands or exhortations about the Christian life. For example, he tells us to let brotherly love continue. He tells us to show hospitality to strangers, to remember those who are in prison, to let marriages be held in honor. All of these are commands. Keep your life free from the love of money. Remember your leaders. So on and on and on, there are exhortation after exhortation in the book of Hebrews, which leads me to talk to you just a brief moment about understanding indicatives and imperatives. And you say, what in the world? I know what an imperative is. An imperative is a command. But what do you mean indicative? Well, our response to God in obedience is founded and enabled by and persevered in through our union with Christ. 
And it's important for us, as we look at the biblical imperatives, to understand what is now true of those of us who are in Christ. And so an imperative is something that is authoritative. It is a command. It is urgent. It is necessary. An imperative is a statement of what we must do. And so Hebrews 13 is filled with these. But an indicative is a verb used to express an act. It explains to us what is true. It is not a command, but it expresses the rationale behind the command. Now, I wanted to quote, it's in your bulletin if you want to read along, uh, Sinclair Ferguson about this issue of gospel imperatives and indicatives, now that you understand what they are. The great gospel imperatives to holiness are ever rooted in the indicatives of grace that are able to sustain the weight of those imperatives. The apostles do not make the mistake that is often made in Christian ministry because for the apostles, the indicatives are much more powerful than the imperatives in gospel preaching. So often in our preaching, our indicatives are not strong enough, great enough, holy enough, gracious enough to sustain the power of what God is calling us to do and be. And so our teaching on holiness becomes a rod or a whip to beat our people's backs because we've looked at the New Testament and that's all we ourselves have seen. I used to think, let me stop on the quote for a moment, I used to think when I was a young preacher, I loved the imperatives because I could make people really feel bad. And it was, you know, that was sort of enjoyable to me in a way. I don't know why I was sick, but I did like it. And you know what? They liked it too. They liked me whipping them with the rod. It was, it was sort of a sick thing. And they would greet me at the back door by saying, Pastor, you really stepped on my toes today. But it was all about that and nothing about transforming their heart. Nothing about how the power of the gospel could make them new and renew them. And so what Ferguson is saying here is we don't want our teaching to become a whip or a rod. We've seen our own failure. We've seen the imperatives to holiness, and we've lost sight of the great indicatives of the gospel that sustains those imperatives. Woven into the warp and woof of the New Testament exposition of what it means for us to be holy is the great groundwork that the self-existent, thrice-holy, triune God has in himself, by himself, and for himself, committed himself and all three persons of his being to bring about the holiness of his own people. That is the Father's purpose, that is the Son's purchase, and that is the Spirit's ministry. We are to become, in reality, in flesh and blood, in living day to day, who we are in union with Christ. We are to become who we are. And the gospel gives us the power to translate into action what is commanded. And so the most important thing for us to see is, let's take this for example. The Bible tells us, that we are to forgive one another. I don't think any of us would argue about that. We're commanded uh, in the Bible to forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven us. And so that is an imperative. 
But where do we get the power to do that? How can I forgive another person when I want to kill them? Or I hate them and I don't even want to see their face. Or what they've done to me is so heinous and it has wounded me and it has hurt me deeply. And I'm so caught up in an emotional quandary about it that I'd rather avoid them than see their face. Where am I going to get the power to overcome all of that to extend forgiveness to another person? And Paul tells us. He tells us, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Can you see how that imperative, be kind and tenderhearted, is anchored in our forgiveness in Christ? We have wounded hurt, despised, rejected, humiliated, turned our back on, rebelled against Christ time and again and again. And he has sweetly extended his forgiveness. He shed his blood to forgive us. And our sin against him is, is a mountain compared to a pebble of anyone else's sin against us. And he has forgiven us. And when I look at his forgiveness of me, it gives me the power to forgive you, even though you don't deserve it. That's grace. And that's where the power comes from. Um, I read so much on this this week, I could preach a whole sermon on it, but we need to get to the text because that is the safest place to be. Uh, a friend of mine who preaches in a very large church in Mississippi was asked what he thought the major problem in the church today was as he looked out over his congregation. He said, is it legalism or cheap grace? Which problem is the biggest problem? And he said, I tend to think that the biggest problem in the church today is that most people think Christianity is about flying right and doing better. What people desperately need to understand is they're loved always, anyways, and always by Jesus, that they don't have to perform to gain the Father's love, and that holiness comes out of daily communion with this living God, with Jesus to whom we are united by the Spirit, who enables us to say no to worldliness and ungodly passions. And so that is the order that the New Testament gives us in regard to these things and so the book of Hebrews for for the most part is just a huge presentation of gospel realities of the indicatives of our Lord Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's done and why he's better and so all of these commands flow out of that or we would have no power to do it how am I going to keep myself from the love of money how am I going to honor my marriage how am I going to entertain strangers and visit prison where am I going to get the power to do that by keeping on going to Jesus that's where you're going to get the power. Now, let's jump right into the message. There are three things that I want us to think about. Uh, and the first one has to do with what he says in verse 7. In verse 7, he says something that I think is extremely important. That is in Hebrews 13. He says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Now... He, he, he is speaking here not of the current leader of the church 
that the Hebrews, letter to the Hebrews is addressed to, could be in Rome, could be in Alexandria. We're not sure where it was. We do know it was a small kind of house church, and there were leaders who had preached the gospel to see this church established. And so the writer of the Hebrews says, you need to remember, that is honor and respect, those who spoke the word of God to you. I can tell you as a preacher, it is easier to preach anything but the Word of God. Because the Word of God is living and powerful and sharp, sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts us, and it convicts us, and it reproves us, and it exposes us. And so he's saying those who are in positions of leadership among you, those who initially proclaimed the gospel of God to you, you are to remember them. They are to be held in esteem. They are to be honored insofar as you consider the outcome of their life. Outcome refers to the sum total of how a person lived his life. And so when you look at people who are leaders in the church, that would be elders or deacons, but here in, in re respect, I think he's talking more about those who do what I do, stand and preach and teach the Word of God. You look at the outcome of their life. And what that means is, do they finish well? Do they finish the Christian life well? Um, it takes a lot of grace to finish well. And you look at their life, and what he's emphasizing here is not so much whether they're perfect or not, because I can assure you, we are not. But what he's saying is, are they models of faith that perseveres? Are they models to imitate their faith? Look at them and see, are these people who were relying completely, totally, absolutely, utterly on Jesus Christ? When you look at them, do you see them relying and depending? Are they talking about themselves or are they talking about Jesus? Are they pointing to themselves or are they pointing to Jesus? That's what you consider. And this whole thing of being a preacher is, is, has, is filled with all kinds of dangers. It's fraught with peril, uh, for, especially for egomaniacs. That's why God makes us suffer so much just to tame that fat, relentless ego that we all have. And he will not abide that in the pulpit. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Amen. But he looks, he, the writer of Hebrews is saying, look at them and see if they are models of the kind of faith, looking outside of yourself, not drawing on your own resources, but drawing upon the resources and power of the Holy Spirit to live life in accordance with what God has commanded us. I think of somebody like J. Gresham Machen, who was a wonderful Christian leader who fought uh, theological and um, Christian liberalism much of his ministerial life. And uh, when he was on his deathbed, he was heard to say, right before he died, thank God for the active obedience of Christ. What a statement! He's saying in the moment of his death, I thank God that it's not dependent on me and how I lived. It's not dependent on my record. It's not dependent on how much I lived up to the standard, but rather he did what? He pointed to Christ. Christ in my stead has kept the law from birth to the grave. 
in order to give me a righteous that is un- righteousness that is unassailable. He has done that for me. So that's what he's saying. He's not saying, you know, give him a plaque or something. He's not saying that. He's saying, look at him, because look at the very next verse. When I first read this passage, I said, that's one of the most wonderful verses in all of the Bible, but what is it doing in this text? It seems like a non sequitur. It doesn't follow. It doesn't really follow. It doesn't seem to. Because look at it. What's the next verse say? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That verse is actually a hinge between verse 7 and verse 9. Verse 8 is a hinge verse. In other words, it points in both directions. It points the reason why the one who taught you the Word of God, you should consider the outcome of their life, and you should imitate their faith, is because why? Jesus Christ is what? The same yesterday, today, and forever. Now that is one of the most beautiful truths in all the Bible. And the reason it's so beautiful is because of what it means. So what does it mean? He says to us, in a very powerful and poignant way, that Jesus is eternally reliable because he is continually unchangeable. Jesus is eternally reliable. He is the only eternally reliable being because he does not change. I am the Lord. I do not change. It's called the immutability of God. He cannot change. He cannot mutate. And so it's an exclamation about who Jesus is. Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. And he is saying that Jesus Christ is eternally reliable because he's continually unchangeable. You can rely on Jesus Christ in the Christian life because he never goes on changing to you. What was that pop song that says, don't go changing? Uh, It was a Billy Joel song, wasn't it? Just the way you are. You sing that one? Don't do it. But anyway, (laughs) he, (laughs) I've heard him sing. He's really good to hear sing. But um, don't go, (laughs) he never changes. Everybody else does. Some of you know this. When you got married, And you were the man in the relationship. You looked at her and said, I hope she never changes. I hope she stays like this. I hope she adores me like this. I hope she worships me like this for the rest of the marriage. And she looks at him and says, I got a lot of changing to do in this man. (laughs) He's good raw material. I think we can make something out of him. But I hope we can change him. And you know what happens? She changes and he never does. And that's marriage, right? But we all have friends. We all have relationships in life. And um, our friends will change, and sometimes they're going to let you down. They're not going to be loyal or faithful to you. Your dearest loved ones will change. Or maybe they won't. And they'll do things that disappoint you. Uh, One of the great tensions and disappointments in marriage and friendships, too, is that one of the other changes. 
And the author of Hebrews says, here's point one of the Christian life. Jesus will never, ever change from being faithful to you. His heart is always turned toward you. That's why you can keep going. You can keep going to Jesus because he never changes. He's never going to one day decide, okay, I'm done. I'm done with Project Tim Posey. I mean, I've exhausted my grace. I've exa- he's exhausted my patience. He's exhausted my mercy. He's done. He never says that. Never says that. He's always the same. Always the same. He's a dependable Savior that has always been that he is today and that he will always be. You will always be able to count on Jesus. Always. Everything else in your life is going to change. But he never will. Everything in your life is changeable. Sometimes not for the better. But he will never change for the worse. You will always and forever be able to depend upon him. And friends, that is huge for the Christian life. Because it makes very clear that Jesus himself is the key to our Christian life. He is the key to our Christian life. There's nothing in my life that's bigger than Jesus. Nothing in my life that's bigger than Jesus. And if there is a desire in my heart that's greater than Jesus, I'm in a dangerous uh, position. And the book of Hebrews says that. But Jesus is better. And so problems dwarf. Jesus in our Christian life, and we think we're facing a problem that's too big for Jesus to deal with because our Jesus is too small. And if there has come to be a love or desire in our heart for either something that we have or something that we don't have that's bigger than our desire and love for Jesus, we're in big trouble because in reality, there is nothing better than Jesus. Nothing. And I think almost all the mature Christians in this room would say with me today that though we know Jesus' love for us does not wax and wane, we can surely say for ourselves that our love for Jesus has waxed and waned in the Christian life. We can remember times when there was nothing more precious to us in this world than Jesus. We remember those times. It may have been when we were deeply struggling with the guilt of sin or a guilt or a sin that we knew we ourselves couldn't handle and we knew we can't fix ourselves and we were in bondage that we couldn't break ourselves free from. And the Lord, in a marvelous deliverance, gave us peace from sin and liberty from that sin and we knew that we could have never done that for ourselves never for ourselves and we almost wanted to dance we love Jesus so much because he delivered us from the guilt and bondage of our sin and when we grew cold and distracted and we thought about other things and then through the word or the ministry of dear friends or the confrontation uh, of a gentle confrontation of a Christian brother or sister we've been brought back into a fuller love for Jesus It just goes up and down, up and down, up and down across the uh, Christian life. But it's always dangerous when our love for Jesus is cold. It's always dangerous because we're in that circumstance. Our problems seem bigger than they are and our desires seem more satisfying than they could ever be because Jesus is the only one who satisfies. 
And there's no problem you will encounter that is bigger than Jesus. Keep going to Jesus. Keep on going to Jesus. He is your hope. He is your life. He is your peace. He is everything to you. Now, Jesus Christ alone is all we need to live the Christian life. But then he moves to another point in the next couple of verses. He talks about being carried away from Christ. Interesting imagery. It's like a piece of an iceberg breaking off and then being carried away by the current. Or it's the idea of the wind carrying a sail on a ship and moving it uh, out on the ocean. And so he talks about being led away, being carried away by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good to the heart to be strengthened by grace. So these strange teachings that he warns us about must not have anything to do with the grace of God. Because they don't strengthen us by grace. So he's going to take the truth that Jesus is the key to the Christian life, that Jesus is eternally reliable because he's continually unchangeable, and he's going to apply that to our living the Christian life. In verse 9, he's going to say that Jesus Christ and his grace, that he and he alone supplies exactly what we need to live the Christian life. In other words, what he's saying is, he's saying what you need is what Jesus supplies, not what false teachers can supply. Now, I could preach an entire message just on false teaching alone, and uh, I'm going to say a little bit more about it uh, if you listen fast. He tells us that we as believers, Paul tells us, that we're no longer to be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful screen, uh, schemes. One of the problems with Christians who receive the letter of the Hebrews is we know from the text they were not mature Christians, that they were still operating in the milk of the Word and not the meat of the Word, and that they ought to be teachers, but they're still like children when it came to the truth. And so he tells them, don't be led away. The warning is needy, needful, especially when the church is weak in grace and shallow in understanding the gospel, as certainly is the case in our own time. So the writer here, there is a danger that these lightweight Christians can get carried away by strange teaching just as strong wind blows away chaff or rolling waves toss around a ship that is not well anchored. We need to be grounded in the truth. Paul warned the Ephesian elders in the book of Acts during his last visit to them. He said this, After my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Paul identifies the nature of their attack, men twisting things to draw away disciples after them. Knowing this, Christians who especially are entrusted with leadership over the church need to always be on their guard to defend the truth. That is what our elders are to do, to defend the truth, to guard the truth, to keep the truth. Paul's emphasis to Timothy is follow the patterns of sound words that you have heard from me in faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Paul says that 
this will be a great threat to the church in years to come, that shallow people in the church will not endure sound teaching, but instead will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and thus will turn many away from the truth. So when you read the scripture over and over, and it's not just a couple of verses, there are lots of verses about this, because it was a real threat. And when you point this out today, you know, the uh, the, the love everybody people will, will be a little uncomfortable. They'll call you divisive and uncharitable, and you're just critical, and you must have some, some psychological deficiency that explains your paranoid attitude. The Bible instructs us, though, to take the warning seriously. And I'd rather take the Bible than I would what anybody else has to say. And one of the reasons why this danger is so constant in the Christian is we have an active, aggressive enemy, namely the devil, who constantly schemes to weaken and overthrow our faith. And he has two main strategies. One is persecution, where he assaults the church from without, and in the light of the history of the church, persecution's never really been a very effective strategy for Satan. It, it, it has been the case that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, so persecution makes the church often grow stronger. But Satan has another strategy, and that is to work from within the church, infiltration. He sends false teachers to don Christian garb and stir up falsehood and error. I just call these guys what they are. They're con men. And they're always flashy. They're usually attractive in some way. They usually are well-spoken. But you can always tell at the end of the day who they're pointing at. And it's usually them. It's never at Jesus. And their teaching never liberates you. It's never grace. It's always what? Works. It's always bondage. And it's always works. And it's always their laws. That's what they point to. And so Paul describes them as false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Martin Luther used to say, there's a black devil, that is the one who is soliciting us to do evil, and then there's the white devil who preaches to us religion and good works as a way to get God to accept us. And that's perennially a problem. Now, what was the problem at the, uh, the church that the book of Hebrews is written to? And it had to do more with old covenant, ceremonial food laws uh, and the old, that the Old Testament gave. And you know, this church was very attracted to the old covenant. And, uh, but their understanding needed to be reinforced that what you're longing for and hungering for, only Jesus can supply. And that's grace. He's the only one who is full of grace and truth. And you need grace not only to be saved, you need grace to be sanctified, you need grace to persevere. How did John Newton put it? His grace has led me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. It was grace that first taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved, and it's going to be that same grace that will lead me home. And so the author to the Hebrews knows what we need for living the Christian life, and we can't get it from false teaching, and that false teaching is in the plural. And we've just said, just looked at a, a number of verses that address that very issue. 
False teaching cannot lead you to maturity in the Christian life. Only the truth can. Only the truth of Jesus. Only Jesus' grace can mature us in the Christian life. And so he says, here's what you need to know. Jesus supplies the grace that you need to live the Christian life. Now his comment about foods at the end of verse 9, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them, brings up the picture of the old ceremonial ritual system where there were foods that you could eat and foods that you couldn't. I find myself really loving all the foods that they tell me I couldn't eat. It's a good thing I didn't live under the old covenant because I love pork. I love barbecue. I believe if I'd been there when the new covenant was reenacted and Peter had the sheet vision, I would have been the first one to get a pork shoulder and cook it low and slow over hickory for hours and sit down and eat that barbecue. I'd have been the first one to do it. It is in my DNA. I'm like Adam. I, I, I don't know if I would have given up a rib that easily. But anyhow... I don't mean to use too much humor. I hold back a lot. <laughs> That's right. It is warm in here. Um, part of the way the Lord kept his people holy under the old covenant is fixed. He fixed where they couldn't eat with people who didn't believe in him. So when you were in the ancient Near East and you met up with a Baal worshiper and they pulled out a massive plate of pork barbecue, you couldn't eat with them because the food law says you don't eat pork. And you know what God did? He kept his people from being able to eat with idolaters by prescribing them a different diet. This was one of the ways that he separated them from the nations. But the thought gets the author of Hebrews, that thought gets the author of Hebrews here to uh, 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 other verses. As we look at verse 10 and 11, and we've been thinking about the Old Testament ritual system, and look at what he says. We have an altar from which those serve in the tent have no right to eat. Now, you know what he's talking about here. In the Old Testament, one of the ways that the priest in Jerusalem got paid is when you brought an animal to sacrifice a lot of the times he got to take part of the meat of that animal sacrifice the best part of the meat of the animal sacrifice and the blood that was used in the temple ritual and the rest of the body was destroyed but you got to keep some of the best meat from those goats rams lambs and cattle and you got to use them to feed your family and so he's thinking about how in the Old Testament, the priest who served in the tent, in the tabernacle, or in the temple, got to eat some of the food that was offered in the ritual process. Now, the really cool thing about this is he's thinking about you, believers, as priests. And he says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. In other words, what he's saying is, Brothers and sisters, you are a kingdom of priests. And just like they got to eat from the Old Testament sacrificial altar in the tabernacle and temple, you kingdom of priests have an altar from which you derive food that nourishes you. And he's about to tell us that in verse 11. Look at what he says. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought in, into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for, of sin are burned where? Outside the camp. Now, if you look at the uh, book of Leviticus, 
Many of the animals that are sacrificed, the priests are allowed to take meat from. But if you turn to Leviticus chapter 16, verse 22 and following, he tells us the atonement offering was not allowed to be consumed by the priest. The atonement sacrifices had to be completely consumed outside of the camp by fire, not by people, by fire. And if you look at Leviticus 16, verse 22 and following, what does it talk about? It talks about the scapegoat. And it talks about the offering of atonement and what happens. The priest puts his head, uh, hands on the head of the scapegoat, symbolically placing all of the sins of Israel on the scapegoat. And the scapegoat is taken outside of the camp and driven into the wilderness. And what's the picture? The picture is the sins of God's people are being placed on the scapegoat and sent far away into the wilderness so that he bears their sin far away into the wilderness outside of the camp. And then for the atonement offering, the atonement offering, the blood of that animal is sprinkled on the people and on the altar and then the animal in its entirety is taken outside of the camp and burned to ashes. So what's the picture here? The picture is, is God's dealing with his people's sins by riddance and by propitiation, by removal, by exile, and by the penalty of his wrath. That is, the scapegoat shows that God's people's sins meant that they deserved to be removed from his presence. Just like God said to Adam and Eve in the garden of, uh, after their sin, go out from this garden. Go out from this garden. Go out from my presence. You've rebelled against me. So the scapegoat is driven out into the wilderness. And the burning of the atonement, the animal's carcass symbolizes. And by the way, did you notice that even the priest that takes the carcass of that animal is not allowed back into the camp until he has completely washed the blood of that animal, having come into contact with the sacrifice of sin. It is a picture of God and how he will deal with sin by meeting out the punishment it deserves. And the author of Hebrews is saying, my friends, Jesus fulfills what is set forth in the atonement ritual in Leviticus 16 in his own death. Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. The author of Hebrews is saying what? Jesus is the scapegoat. He suffers outside of the camp. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice. He sheds his own blood for his people. And he is your altar. He's the one who supplies you what you need for sustenance. By his person and his atoning work, he supplies to you the grace that you need in order to be nourished. Just as the scapegoat was sent into the wilderness, Jesus is crucified not on the temple mount. He is killed not in the temple precinct, but he's killed outside the gates of Jerusalem where, where criminals are punished. That's where he's crucified. You know, in the Old Testament, if you look at the phrase outside of the camp, it occurs a dozen to two dozen times, mostly in Leviticus and Numbers. And when it does, it means one of three things. One, someone who is unclean or defiled is sent outside of the camp. Two, someone who has sinned against the Lord is sent outside of the camp, often to be judged, sometimes to be stoned to death outside the camp. Third, the carcasses of the atonement 
uh, offerings are to be taken outside of the camp. So do you see the picture? The picture is a picture of separation from God, of separation from his people. And you remember what Jesus cried from the cross, quoting Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experiences the loneliness and the abandonment and the dereliction of the sin bearer outside the camp. He, that's why the author of Hebrews here emphasizes that he suffered outside the gate, uh, gate. He didn't die in Jerusalem. He died at Golgotha, the hill of the skull, where men were crucified outside the gates of Jerusalem. That's where he died. And the author of Hebrews is saying, he bears in his own body the true penalty of our sins. We could not survive the bearing of the full weight of the wrath of God. We'd be like, uh, we'd be like those carcasses burned to ashes outside of the camp. But Jesus did. He was raised again, and in doing that, he bore the penalty that was due us. He, he atoned for us. And the author of Hebrews is saying in so many words, the key to living the Christian life is you understand who Jesus is, and you understand what he's done for you, and you find yourself going to Jesus as the crucified one. Going to Jesus as the one who atoned for you. Going to Jesus as the scapegoat. Going to Jesus as the scapegoat. Isn't it interesting that when Adam and Eve sinned and God came to question them, uh, he addresses the serpent, and the serpent doesn't have a leg to stand on, and he's done with him. And then he comes to Adam, and he said, It's the woman you gave me. He comes to the woman. She said, My husband gave it to me, and I did eat. Scapegoating happened everywhere and it's in our DNA our fallen DNA to scapegoat 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 well here's the real scapegoat here's the one who became the scapegoat for us so when we look at verses 13 and 14 he tells us therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured for we have no lasting city here but we seek the city to come now, what is he saying? Here's the great challenge that we all have. If the, in the Christian life, the great challenge is in thinking something is better than Jesus. Now, when I went to seminary, with all due respect, I had a professor who I dearly loved who taught me a lot of things, but he turned me off the very first lecture. He came out, and uh, he was sort of strutting around, and, you know, my first impression of him was not positive. It was a, that, oh my goodness, the, the, he's taken all the air out of the room. His ego is so huge. I wonder why God hadn't crushed him. That's what I was thinking. As charitable as I can be. And he says, I can't stand this just give me Jesus Christianity. And he went on to lecture about how important it is to be doctrinally sound. And he had a point, and his point was well taken, is just give me Jesus, what he meant was empty-headed, not understanding who Jesus really is, not really understanding who or what Jesus has done for us, but rather just using Jesus' name as sort of a mantra. You know, just give me Jesus. Kind of like, uh, was it Chris Christopherson, drop, kick, kick me Jesus through the goalpost of life, that kind of thought. That's what he was uh, r rallying against. But 
it, it caused me to make a turn in my own theological development at the time to sort of put Jesus on the back burner and learn all of this theology, which is wonderful. I'm not arguing that we don't need that. We do. But never put Jesus on the back burner. Never, ever put Jesus on the back burner. And he's telling us in the Christian life, that is the greatest challenge. And to say that something's better than Jesus, you know what the Bible calls that? Worldliness. When you think there's something better than Jesus, it's called worldliness. And when you think you have a problem bigger than Jesus, there's a name for that. It's called worldliness because this world is held together by the fingers of Jesus. There's no problem in the world bigger than Jesus. He holds the word together by the word of his power. And there's nothing better in this world than Jesus. But we struggle with worldliness because most of us, the world's been a pretty nice place to us, and our hearts are pulled toward it. What the author of Hebrews is saying is here's going to be a key to your maturing, growing, and living the Christian life. Go to Jesus because he is better than anything the world has to offer. Cling to Jesus. Go to him. Hang on to him. Seek him. Seek the city which is to come, not this world which is passing away. The author of Hebrews knows that if you go to Jesus, there will be people who will think you are a fool. You are a fool. You will bear reproach. You will bear shame. You will be called a fanatic. You will be called a religious zealot. You're a nut. You're just way too religious. I tell you all the time, I talk to my brother and he says, Oh, I saw a friend of yours from high school the other day in my hometown. And he says... He asked me, he said, is Tim still religious or did he get off that kick and get on something else? Kind of hoping that I was no longer religious. And I told my brother the other day, he said, no, don't tell him I'm religious. Tell him that I've fallen in love with Jesus. That's what I want you to tell him. That the most anti-religious person in the universe is Jesus Christ. Why? Because religion, that is, doing what I have to do to right myself with God, stands in the way of saving faith. <laughs> so, we keep going to Jesus. We keep going to Jesus. We keep going to Jesus. Do you see where he went for you? He went outside the camp. He bore your reproach. Now when the world say, okay, it's us or him, who's it going to be? The author of Hebrews says, keep going to Jesus. Go to Jesus. Go to Jesus. And when the world say, says that, you tell them he bore my reproach. Be willing in gratitude for his grace to bear a little bit of his reproach. Go to Jesus. Go to Jesus. When you think your problems are bigger than Jesus and when you think there's something better out there than Jesus, the author of Hebrews is saying you need a long meditation on Christology, the doctrine of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Think about who Jesus is. Think about what he did. And that's where you get the grace for strength. That's where when I go to him in weakness, he becomes my strength. When I go to him in confusion, he becomes my wisdom. When I go to him in fear, he becomes my peace. When I go to him in anxiety, he gives me rest. Jesus is everything to me. Is he everything to you?